Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast, a selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Rider. I'm also treasurer of the events fundraising group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, currently at London Marathon Events but formerly at Alzheimer's Research UK. Coveted New Media Age cover star from February 2007, Van Stanton Beer Pong finalist and co-host of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do more good. Do good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Right, here we are, James, episode number 76 of the Do More Good podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, Kenneth. Very well indeed. How are you this evening? Yeah, I'm good, actually. The sun's shining, the pubs are open, got a brilliant guest. What more is there to life? It's all, it's all coming together quite nicely. We were just talking off air about the, the different um, platforms that you have to be proficient in these days. We were on Zoom tonight. We spent the day on Google Meets. We've got Teams going on. I mean, you must be a master of each now. I don't know. I'm normally normally reaching over to my nine-year-old daughter say, excuse me, can you come and help me with this? It used to be the other way around, but it's just suddenly changed over the last year. But yeah, we're getting there. But we've got a bit of a, a bit of a theme for today about starting new jobs. And so, James, come on, you must have a good story for our listeners about starting a new job and something funny happening to you. It always you, does. You, <laughs> <laughs> calamity just seems to follow me around, Kenneth, as you well know, which is why you tee these up and put them on the notes at the top. But it's not quite a new job, but my mind immediately went back to 2017. I was on a four day course. So I was away from home. We were staying in a hotel. It was um, it felt like it was a bit of an exclusive course to go on. The the best and the brightest from the sector were going on this. There were (laughs) applications and you had to have references and it all had to be agreed. It was all around kind of aspiring leaders in the sector. It was like Top Gun. (laughs) that's how I like to imagine it all right um someone must have dropped out for me to have been invited on obviously and uh, it was breakfast on the first day and uh everyone turns up and 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 we're all a little bit nervous and kind of sussing each other out who's ice man who's goose you know who's cougar in the room (laughs) and queuing up for breakfast and I thought I'm not going to go I'm not going to go with the lager I will make myself a, <laughs> I'll make myself a nice cup of tea. First impressions, obviously, being important. And there's quite a long queue, but there was a, one of those boxes of fancy teas, and I went with like a Fortnum and Mason English breakfast Ooh. tea, popped it in the in the mug. And they also had this shows you how fancy it was. One of those hot water taps, you know, the things which look like they're about to. And all the adverts, I worry about third degree burns. But I thought I'm going to be brave and I'm going to go for this. And this one looked pretty simple to, to use. So I kind of moved it and immediately, like quite clearly in front of everybody that, <laughs> else that I was on the course with, sparkling water came out and filled the mug. Like there was no getting away from it. This idiot oh, had just God. made a, a cup of tea. So just, you know, put the mug down picked up my bag, went and got back on the train. <laughs> Excuse me, mate, I think you're in the wrong room. This, this is for <laughs> this, aspiring leaders. Yeah, I didn't put that on my reference about not being able to make a cup of tea. Oh, it was oh. awful. And oh. It probably played on my mind so much more than anybody else's, but I knew what I'd done. It it's just there. It's such an uncomfortable situation, isn't it? Sometimes starting a new job, just going in there, not knowing the lay of the land, the office politics, how the yeah. tea rounds work, who sits where. 
but yeah i haven't i, I don't really have a, a funny story about it but i do have a positive first day one a year, probably about my third job in i my first day was a, a day trip to portugal um to see Your a client. first day my first day in a new job and so and there was also someone else starting on the on the first day so i went up to pick up who's now a, a really close friend of mine roberta actually she's been on the show um, so we went, went to, to meet her at her house in Cambridge at like 4.30. I was in a taxi in the morning and we, we went down to, to Stansted, flew to Lisbon, went for this meeting, you know, didn't get back until midnight, whatever. So we had basically 16 or 18 hours together on the first day of a new job, both of us brand new with one of our colleagues. And it was great. We built such a great close bond after having 18 hours together on the first day. That it that it continues to continues today. So yeah, that's my start a new job story. Yeah, I like that. That you would bond over that. That you've kind of forced together in a taxi at four thirty in the morning. And yeah, then, uh, yeah. What an experience. To exactly. Start. Were you working for the, the the Portuguese tourism board, or why was why did you have to go to Portugal <laughs> on your first day? That feels like the most brutal induction of all time. No, it was uh, just a client out there. We were working with the Vodafone, one of the telcos out there. So uh, it was a client. We needed to go out and see it. And yeah, first day induction with a client in Portugal. God. It was a good experience. And having been away with you to such things, I, I imagine you were still up at 4.30 in the morning. You and, you know, Wesley Snipes in a, in a nightclub <laughs> somewhere in Lisbon, still going strong. I told you, James, that's a former life. We'll, we'll, we'll move on from that. We'll move on from that. Anyway, let's crack on and introduce our guest who's patiently waiting. Do you want to go with the intro, James? Go for it. All right. Our guest this week was just seven days into a new role when the opportunity presented itself to have her join us on the podcast. After researching her background, achievements and experience in the charity sector, we thought she would make the perfect guest. So following eight years working for the MP Rory Stewart, finally leaving the role as Chief of Staff in 2018, she joined the newly established Joe Cox Foundation in 2018, following the shocking murder of the hugely respected and admired MP. As CEO of the foundation, she has worked on issues such uh, as diverse as community cohesion, tackling online harm, preventing abuse and intimidation in public life, loneliness and um, social isolation, and the prevention of identity-based violence. Positive social change has been a thread throughout her life, and as the founding director of 5050 Parliament and with Women to Win, she has campaigned for equal representation of women in Parliament. Then, just a week ago, she joined the London Marathon Charitable Trust as their newly appointed executive director, helping to continue to evolve and drive forward its mission of inspiring activity through improved access to facilities and challenging inequalities of access to sport. And with the Trust celebrating its 40-year anniversary this year, we thought it'd be a great opportunity for Kenneth to get to know his new colleague, but also hear about Catherine's career in the sector. So we'd like to welcome Catherine Anderson to the Do More Good podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's a huge honour to be here and we'll have to imagine we're all in the pub having a nice pint and a chat. Oh, sounds sounds, sounds so nice, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? I'm imagining a a terrace in Lisbon somewhere. (laughs) We've been flown out for this. Snipes. I don't know where he came into the picture. Oh, last last week, Kenneth was just dropping his A-list friends and how he was (laughs) partying with Wesley Snipes. Right. No, we had it. We we have to give that some more context, don't we? We had a we had a conversation with a chap from the NSPCC who was their head of celebrity and influencer re- relationships, and the start of the conversation was which celebrities have you met? And and mine was Wesley Snipes. Oh, <laughs> Who did Kenneth you go with? James? Wesley Snipes. I had Anton Dubeck. 
<laughs> like the different level. I mean, I'm nothing against Anton, lovely chap, but yeah, he's that is ridiculous to the sublime, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, as we touched on there, you know, we're now colleagues, have been for, for a week. I mean, myself working for, for London Marathon events, and you recently having joined the Charitable Trust at a London Marathon. So it's it's good to get this this chance to speak to you on, on the podcast. I guess before we kind of get into your, your background, how's, how's your first week been? How, how's it been getting into a new role? Any experiences on the first day that you want to tell us about? <laughs> well, there were no water cooler chats or, you know, this is how I like my tea. How do you like your tea? Which is weird because if you told me a year ago I'd be starting a job like this remotely, I would have greatly feared that day. But, but you know, it's, it's been great. It's been fine. Everyone's been incredibly welcoming, as you'd imagine. It's been uh, lovely to, you know, meet so many people from across the group, London Marathon events, as well as, of course, the Trust. Been been running a lot as well this week. It's so good to connect with everyone on the Marathon House Strava Club, uh, which is bringing out the worst of my competitive nature. <laughs> um, it's been superb. Yeah, feeling really, really very, very privileged and lucky to be in this role. So, yeah, thank you. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. And you managed not to embarrass yourself like me. So that's, that's always been <laughs> a, yeah, a good first day. You can get through that. <laughs> With our guests on this show, we like to go back to the start of their careers and their journeys. And Kenneth is something like something of a bloodhound, which you will, you will discover <laughs> uh, as, your, as your work with London Marathon continues. And he's dug out that you uh, did quite a bit of traveling during your, your early years. Uh, you've got a degree in modern languages. And then you actually end up going to India for, for six years. Can you tell us a little bit about that and where, where that journey <laughs> began? Yeah, sure. So I, I was very lucky that I was, most of my schooling was abroad. So my dad was a teacher and he uh, took us all, the whole family uprooted us when I was about five to go and live um, in Italy and then moved on around Europe, basically teaching at international schools. And we sort of trailed along behind him. But the upshot of that is that I'm I'm what you call a third culture kid. You know, I grew up in a culture not that of my birth and I was extremely lucky to have you know made friends throughout my life from all over the globe really and yeah you know that kind of upbringing just gives you a very international outlook so I always felt very nomadic in a weird way the UK felt like home but not like home and in fact it's still to a large extent doesn't feel like home in many ways I still feel like it's a fascinating place that I'm traveling through learning all about and yes I suppose that's like the roots of why I have been so comfortable just upping sticks <laughs> through my life and just uh, deciding yeah I'm gonna go and live in India for a bit the, the whole India thing was basically I wanted to spend a year there and I ended up spending six <laughs> wow. I went out originally to get some experience in, in development, international development. It was in Gujarat. I got a, a, a job with the intention actually of going on to, to study international development and make that my career. So I got, I got a job in the, the Ran of Kutch area where the Gujarati earthquake of 2001 had happened. There was a huge relief effort ongoing kind of five years later and went out there, did some work with local Indian charities uh, working on rebuilding schools and infrastructure and then one day I traveled up to the north of India because actually I couldn't stand the heat in Gujarat it was unbearable for like a 
pasty Anglo-Saxon like me, I just, yeah, the, the, the hotter it got, the more uncomfortable it got, I thought, right, I need a break. I'm going to go up to the mountains and do a bit of traveling. And I ended up in the uh, Dalai Lama's community, which is a place called McLeod Ganj, uh, the Tibetan exile community, basically, uh, in India, the main Tibetan exile community in India. And I ended up staying for five years. <laughs> wow. Weird, weird and wonderful. And I essentially set up a small, an NGO, a, a sort of not-for-profit, a social enterprise, essentially, that there is a a huge diaspora of Tibetans in, in India. Many of them are living an extremely difficult existence, particularly the women. It's a very patriarchal, you know, community, society. Mm. Um, and I set up a not-for-profit project where I was training up Tibetan women and some fairly, yeah, some Tibetan girls as well, actually, who dropped out of school in a workshop training them up in sewing basically but we registered with the ethical fashion forum in the UK so that we could actually train these women in skills that were commercial and viable so that we were actually producing for British quite British brands actually in the end so so that's what I ended up doing didn't do the the MA didn't didn't study and never went back to Gujarat where uh, it was unbearably hot Sounds amazing. And, and, and as you were talking there, it, I just reflected on a, I think maybe another podcast I'd heard about people who are born into the military when their families move around. And you, you talked about never feeling a belonging, but actually the skills and how that gives you as a, as a young person to have to move around quite frequently, make new friends, settle in. And actually they yeah. come to, it really benefits them in, in later life. Have you experienced that as well? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's true that the skills that you absorb without even knowing mm. there are huge advantages to it, undoubtedly. But there are also huge disadvantages. You can feel very um, it's hard to form relationships because you you get used to people passing through. It's a common thing with TCKs that, you know, they go on to be kind of commitment phobes. Mm. It can mean that you actually have quite sort of quite a low attention span in a way you know you're you're very much often a jack of all trades master of none you don't specialize as much you you know there's so much that interests you because you've been so exposed at such a young age to so much in the world and so many different cultural experiences through your friends so it's a double-edged sword but it is overwhelmingly a positive thing yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and I just wanted to, to dig in a little bit more Catherine I mean you spoke about your father was a teacher traveled around with him and his his career and his his role where did that social purpose feeling manifest itself can you can you remember was there a time in your young life that you you, you can <laughs> refer back to or yeah interesting one so I think a lot of my family were in some way involved in public service in the public sector whether it was Uh, my grandmother who was a nurse or my dad who was a teacher my grandfather who was a sort of public engineer it's funny because when people talk about they have a particular skill or a particular talent for something the the only thing I've ever been very talented at or maybe I'm not even talented at it actually but it is feeling a sense of duty to others and it's really hard to explain it or say I learned this skill in 
wanting to serve others. Mm. I, I do think it's kind of like a vocational thing mm. without sounding too, you know, like a zealot or anything. But I think if you are drawn to public service and to helping others, it, it just is there in you. Mm. Um, certainly my education was very much around doing good and <laughs> do more good, you know, leave the world. Ding, where's, where's the little bell? We normally have a little it, bell yeah. for that when it, <laughs> it gets mentioned. <laughs> this is where you need to ring it. I've just always found that the most fulfilling thing, and, and there is no such thing as a selfless good deed, so it does benefit me doing good for others. But um, it, it's kind of like a calling, really. Yeah, it, it is the most fulfilling thing I think I could I could ever be doing in mm. some shape or form. Mm. You talked there about setting up your NGO and other parts of your career around leadership. Do you think that kind of entrepreneurial spirit came from the... The, the traveling maybe like to put it quite literally you didn't see the boundaries of where you were living you moved around you're you're not constrained by by that perhaps yeah perhaps I think maybe yes I don't know if you agree with me or not but I certainly hear a lot about the tall poppy syndrome in the UK and that entrepreneurship and risk-taking can often be sort of you know we, we try and encourage it but then we, we can often turn on success in quite a nasty way sometimes as a mm. society. I didn't experience that. So again, it was just that a wealth of opportunity and a wealth of people around me saying, you can do anything. However, I, you know, my family always kept me in check. You know, my parents in particular were not pushy parents. You know, they, they, they weren't sort of like pushing me into the limelight or, saying I was going to be the next Elon Musk or whatever but <laughs> I think that balance of feeling you could take a risk being supported and being told that you can achieve your dreams um, is really liberating even though you know I'm not saying everything I've done has been a success I'm glad I've always tried mm -hmm. and I think it's that that spark of just letting people try in the first place I would rather fail than not have tried at all yeah. and that's uh, yeah that's that was the that was the uh, kind of opening minutes from our very first uh, meeting on the Do More Good podcast, wasn't it, Kenneth? Like, Even if this fails horribly, at least we've given it a go. Well, we're certainly not a success yet. Have we? we might have actually failed. Uh, well, I'd say I'd say you're definitely a success. Uh, oh, yeah, thank you. Seventy six episodes in that that's more than successful. Well, you know what? It's often people people say to us, "Oh, what are you trying to? What you what, what do you want to achieve with this?" And and a little bit like what you were saying, we just wanted to explore a new experience, and and we've so enjoyed it. Just the two of us, you know, being able to catch up with seventy six different people, probably actually nearly 80, 80, 90 now that it that it gives us so much. So it kind of goes on to that. Um, Catherine, just coming back, I, I just wonder from those experiences of your early years, you know, your your degree, you talked about traveling around, you talked about starting the N NGO. What 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 characteristics or things did you learn during that time that you see in yourself now? Is there anything that you can highlight? <laughs> wow, that's a big question. Interesting. I think definitely in inclusivity. Actually, now now looking back, and you know we're we're all talking now, rightly so, about inclusion and empowerment and giving voice to silent voices and, mm. and so on and looking back I suppose that's what I was doing not in a 
structured way in a totally organic way mm. I think that we were talking about your experience James at the aspiring leaders course or whatever it was I've I've literally never taken part in any kind of organized leadership type training which is yeah don't tell the trustees at the London Marathon (laughs) (laughs) but you know (laughs) I've never done any like formal management type training Mm. which sometimes worries me when you hear people talking about the ways things need to be done and these acronyms and you know models of leadership and so forth I'm fascinated by leadership for me I've just been really lucky that whenever I've led on a project but it's never leading because it's always in collaboration with everyone who's working with me it's it's always been successful because they have been empowered to be autonomous and be their own leaders and be free to evolve. So I suppose, yeah. And maybe, maybe resilience, you know, mm. and resilience. Uh, I was listening to your, your last episode. I really enjoyed that. And um, Jane referenced resilience, didn't she? And I've throughout my life been told, Oh, you're a very resilient person. And I I often wonder, what does that actually mean? Because now resilience can actually be not a great thing in in so far as you can be masking Mm. trauma or you could be working way too hard and people see that as resilient. Oh, look, Catherine's emailing at 2 a.m. again. That's Mm. not good. (laughs) So I have a newfound appreciation for self-care. So to flip your question around, Kenneth, there are things that I've learned which I did badly before. Mm. Uh, One of the main ones was neglecting self-care and neglecting encouraging others to prioritize their self-care it's interesting as you go through kind of chapters in your life and different periods and you can now look back and reread that chapter from earlier and think actually I was behaving in a certain way that felt right at the time but now I can see it for for different different ways at different reasons and you do and you do things for different you know different reasons at different times that's how you end up having such an interesting career there's a part that we want to touch on around some time you spent in Tibet with your late fiance, Angus, and you went on to set up a foundation in his name. Could you just mm. tell us a little bit around that? Mm. Yeah. So the, the, the very short version of the story is that I, when I was living in McLeod Ganj in North India for all those years, I had a very good friend whose name was Angus. Uh, it was quite a small expat community of us who lived there permanently and uh, he was uh, Australian photojournalist. We were just really good friends. And uh, I actually uh, was married to a Tibetan person. Uh, That was one of the reasons why I ended up staying so long out there in North India. But um, the point of this story is that Angus and I actually fell in love about sort of five years later after we'd both left uh, the Himalayas and we'd both, I'd come back to the UK. I was working for Rory Stewart, as you mentioned earlier, he was, being a photojournalist in Australia. Uh, and anyway, we uh, had this amazing uh, love story, if you like. Uh, and about six months after getting together, uh, he was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. So pancreatic cancer, as you know, probably is one of the, the real baddies when it comes mm. to survival rates and treatments, largely because its symptoms can go undiagnosed for so long. So we, uh, yes, I mean, everything changed then. I basically looked after him for the last year of his life. I was actually working still in politics, but working remotely. 
rather extreme remotely because I was like <laughs> yeah I was going to say there's one thing working <laughs> from home then there's another going to <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, you know it, it was pretty amazing one of the the best years of my life mm. if not the best year of my life really even while I was caring for the person I was going to marry who I knew would die quite soon mm. to sort of fast forward to to the the, the Angus Macdonald Trust which uh, became a, a real passion project of mine what happened was that Angus had spent a lot of time in Burma Myanmar if you want to call it Myanmar Myanmar Burma as a journalist he'd actually walked through Burma back in the 80s uh, researching a book so he'd been there when the military junta was like at its peak at that time it was 2013 you know it was the opening of of Myanmar and San Suu Kyi had been released from house arrest and Angus was in a kind of a remission and we got this crazy idea to travel to Yangon, Rangoon, for a, a literary festival that Aung San Suu Kyi was the patron of. And it was just this symbol of the new Burma. It was amazing. And for, for Angus anyway, who was a, you know, inveterate traveller and explorer, you know, having been shackled to medical treatments, mm intense surgeries, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, you name it, for a year. The prospect of going to Myanmar was amazing. Uh, so we did it, booked our tickets, um, <laughs> and um, he never he never returned. He, um, during the, we were going to be there for about three weeks, but I guess 10 days into our trip, he began to get very, very ill. And uh, he he actually died at the airport um, as we were leaving, as we, we'd actually uh, changed our tickets back to Sydney. We brought them forward. We'd been traveling up, up in the north of Burma when he took ill. There was no access to any kind of healthcare, actually. So somehow we got back to Yangon. He was ready to travel, as ready as could be, and, and then as I say, I mean, we, we'd actually just checked our baggage in um, when he he collapsed um, and he died at the airport. Uh, and that was February 2013. And I was there alone in, in Yangon. Yeah, left wow. to sort everything out. So a profound experience, mm. um, not a good one. And... Uh, as a result of that, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, we actually had to organise his funeral. We decided, Angus's family and I, you know, we, we weren't going to repatriate the body. He he was not a Buddhist, but he had obviously lived a lot of his life in Buddhist cultures. And we wanted him to have a cremation there roughly along Buddhist, the Buddhist lines of a Buddhist cremation and funeral. So we did that. And Essentially, everyone was just so kind to me, from the the, <laughs> the people at the airport to the the government morgue to the the people who organised the funeral, the people at the crematorium, and in order to kind of thank them, I suppose Angus's family and I decided that we would would um, set up a small trust, family trust, to sort of fundraise and and donate to. The area actually where near where he, he was cremated. So I sort of ran that for a good few years from really sort of 2014 through to about last year. 
the situation in Myanmar is obviously dire right now, but mm. the Rohingya crisis had, you know, pres- I, I suppose, yes, it, you know, that that comes with its own issues. And Aung San Suu Kyi is far from blameless in that. She's now, of course, on the other side of the military again. It's just made it very difficult to work in Myanmar and fundraise for projects in Myanmar. Mm. But we did do a lot of good. <laughs> we did more good yeah. uh, in the country <laughs> that Angus loved and that he died in. So was, sorry, that, that was a bit longer than I planned. Thank you for sharing that with us, Catherine. I think it's, it says it says a lot about you and about your 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 personality. And I, I think it's just amazing to hear that even in the, the the height of his illness, he wanted to kind of still go and go to this literary festival and still experience and still travel. And I mean, flying into Myanmar isn't an easy thing to do, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it says a lot about him. It's Kenneth's turn to get the drinks in this week. So I'm going to let you know that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Do More Good Pod. Or if you're a professional business person, you can find us on LinkedIn too. There's a website, domoregood.uk, packed full with episodes, blog posts, details of the team and a link to the newsletter for your VIP content. Coming back, two pina coladas and a lager for me. And you you mentioned about politics have have played a a significant part in your life. And you obviously worked for the former MP, uh, Rory Stewart. Was a role in politics always part of your plan? (laughs) No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and and one of the reasons why I've become much more involved in campaigning for more women to put themselves forward for office, public office of some description, is because I never considered that I could be an MP for a long time, or, or I wasn't actively discouraged, but I could see men being actively encouraged, mostly by other men in politics but um that is not the was not the case for women and it's still not the case now that it's organically you know the encouragement of people into public life there is still an assumption that it's a male role Mm. I think which is why there are initiatives like 50 50 parliament women to win labor women's network who are having to basically (laughs) accelerate the pace of change so that at the very least, we have we aspire to have gender representative public institutions, which we don't currently have. Mm-hmm. So it didn't really figure. Well, I guess that's a lie because I was I was involved in student politics a lot, but um, <laughs> that's that's another thing, isn't it? I think just working with Rory in the constituency and in Westminster, it did make me angry that. It was the domain of an extremely privileged minority. And I'm in a privileged minority. I'm not, I'm not under any illusions about that, but mm. I'm slightly less privileged than a lot of the politicians we have now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you talk about there's representation at the time, isn't there? And then there's all we talk a lot on this show about set it, being either becoming a role model for somebody or leading the way for others and kind of inspiring that future generation that into that as well I'd imagine definitely yeah definitely and then you went on to to join the Joe Cox Foundation that must have been a a challenging time for I mean an amazing organization can you tell us a little bit around that and why that felt like the right move for you at that time yes yeah it's a great question because 
the Joe Cox Foundation was only two years old when I joined. Obviously, Joe was murdered in 2016. Her friends and family, I don't know if you remember, there was a huge crowdfund campaign after Joe was murdered, which totally escalated and and they ended up raising over well over two million quid wow. in a matter of days just on crowdfunder and the bulk of those donations were five ten ten pounds mm. so obviously some an entity had to form in order to disperse those funds which were nominally to go to causes that joe cared about exactly half a million was given to three causes each hope not hate the rvs in West Yorkshire, where Joe's constituency was, and to the White Helmets in Syria. And with what was left, the Joe Cox Foundation was established. So when I joined in 2018, I mean, firstly, when I went for the role, it felt ideal for me because although our politics were slightly different, Joe's background was very similar to mine. She'd had a background in international development. She was passionate about making parliament more family friendly as well as more accessible as well mm. as more you know, you know more, more representative and she she had a, a lot of local experience and could really bring to life the local in parliament and and she also worked cross-party and I just thought if only we had more politicians like that who just didn't you know churn out the same old party lines that further separate and cause those you know that tribalism that I think so many of our generation and younger just don't get mm. you know we yeah. just don't understand it. It, was, it particularly prevalent at that time it felt didn't it that that was really coming in at that time and yeah, uh, to go against that was definitely. a bit of a trailblazer yeah. yeah 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 definitely she was I mean I guess my reflections on that time because I remember obviously it was such a huge and massive thing when it happened was that I wasn't aware of all of the great work that she'd done. And, it, and, and, and so in some ways, the positive was that actually it showed that these people were representing society. They were what actually an MP was trying to do. And, and I think that that was some of the good that, that, that came out of that terrible and awful situation that actually as a public, and you know, I've never been really into politics, but even I remember myself actually then acknowledging what goes on uh, from a good MP. Yeah, mm. that, I think that's true. There, there was a, a hashtag that trended for not very long after Joe was murdered, but it was something like, thank your MP. Mm. Um, and, and it did, you're right, it did actually sort of bring a whole new understanding of what MPs do, albeit for a relatively short time, because, you know, the public perception of British politicians has just gone down and down and down and down. Mm it's hard to see how much further it can go actually because I think public trust is sort of 10% or something in yeah. politics and politicians. They're almost down to, to podcaster levels aren't they now? <laughs> nearly. <laughs> I was going to say James we need to get you in there you, you'd do a good job. <laughs> oh I'm not sure about that I don't know. <laughs> Can't even make a cup of tea. <laughs> So, and then Catherine, obviously now recently, we just, we just spoke about it at the start. You, you've joined the, the London Marathon Charitable Trust, which obviously I've been working for, for London Marathon Events, which is the, the trading company as part of the, of the trust. And, you know, I've known about its great work to, to inspire activity and have known about what the Charitable Trust have been trying to do. And it was one of the reasons that I, I joined the organisation. But 
what excited you about this this role and, and about what it could achieve yeah um everything really <laughs> genuinely when I I was actually approached about the role and you know you just know don't you when it's something you really want and yeah. it's something that you think you can genuinely thrive in that role and it felt for a whole range of reasons yes the marathon of course it's iconic but I I love the fact that it had been quietly the trust relatively quietly over 40 years you know four decades it had been to a degree in the shadows of that iconic brand the marathon but it had been doing good and dispersing you know so much capital investment more recently strategic investment in uh, just such a huge variety of projects to inspire activity and I, I and I particularly love that it took a sort of holistic community approach to sport for good and and that it was about breaking down barriers importantly so that it wasn't just about sport it was about cohesion and social outcomes and rectifying inequalities of access I just got a really great impression of the team and the organization as you know it's its values and its culture really appealed to me so yeah I mean it was the best ever Christmas present when I found out just before Christmas that I'd got the job oh, that's <laughs> nice did they yes. warn you up front you'd have to work with Kenneth or was that that little <laughs> surprise when he when he turned up well they, they did say at the, at the uh, board interview that you know one of my colleagues would be Kenneth Foreman. I was like, great. Well, oh, <laughs> come on. No, yes. <laughs> Pull in yeah. my leg. Pull yeah. in my leg. Um, it's interesting that right at the beginning of that question, you said, you just, you just know, you just know, oh. you've got to do it. And it sounded like actually looking back on your other answers previous to that, that you have just known or <laughs> you've made that decision and gone for it and all in all the chips on the table. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this brilliantly. Are you always that confident or do you just go with your gut? Do you just trust yourself? You know, what kind of goes into that? I don't think it's confidence, but it's definitely the heart, not head thing. Mm. I don't overthink very much at all in life. I just go, you know, and I love mentoring. So I'm, I'm mentoring at the moment a couple of young women, but I also just inadvertently end up mentoring or just advising and guiding former colleagues of mine. I say the same thing to them. I find a lot of my younger colleagues do overthink a lot. Mm. And I just say, just go for it because nothing is ever permanent. If there's one thing I learned from living in a Buddhist community for six years is everything is impermanent and do not attach yourself to ideas of how fixed ideas yeah, I, I do follow my gut. Yeah, that must be quite liberating. Maybe you don't appreciate that because if if that's just the way that you think, you don't you don't have that experience of overthinking things and kind of should I go for it? Should I not set up a podcast with Kenneth Thomas? Should I? Should I not? Should I? Oh, I don't know. You know, you would have just you know just all in, and maybe you don't. Yeah, you don't have that that nagging doubt about whether to whether to make that call in your head. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I'm sure there are downsides to it too, James. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, you've touched on it there about kind of mentoring others. How does, how does, that, how does that manifest itself in you as a, as a leader? I, you know, someone did say the other day, oh, you're clearly an inclusive leader. And someone else described the way I work as sort of empowering leadership. I mean, 
I, I don't tend to label it, but one of my core beliefs is, you know, we do rise by lifting others genuinely. I just don't get, I said earlier, I'm, I'm a really competitive person. But when it comes to colleagues, I'm not remotely competitive. It's weird, actually, that that competition does not manifest itself in my career. It, it does sound trite, but it works for me anyway, which is that you delegate, you, you empower, as long as someone is getting the job done on their terms in the time that they need to do it in. And if they need support, you make it clear that they can come to you for support. But generally, I just think that generates the best results and the best work and the best teams. Mm. Much as I get attached to people and colleagues in particular, and you hate the thought of them leaving, I mm. always want to see them move on and move up and forge their own career. Mm. And I, I never really had a mentor. So that's why I think I enjoy it so much is I just want people to, 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 to be given that, that vote of confidence that I never actually really had. So I think I've had to, maybe that answers some of your previous questions. I've had to like find that vote of confidence in me. Mm. And I know that's really lucky that I've been able to do that and not, not that that is, you know, I'm very, very grateful for that, whatever it is. That's my general approach. That's great. And it's a good answer because actually it covers off our next question, which was around what kind of mentors have you had in your life? And so you you said, you haven't. is there any... I mean, it kind of, are there any role models that you've looked at or seen other leaders and you thought, oh, I quite like that approach and I'll follow that? Or have you always just forged your own or your own way? I have to say that, that Rory Stewart, if I can name check my former boss, um, <laughs> he, I learned a huge amount from him, actually. He was very hands off as well, but he was he was very strategic. So he knew exactly where you needed to be guiding and checking in and I learned a huge amount from him in terms of confidence, you know, just public speaking and presenting yourself almost as a brand. That sounds a bit. Mm. Particularly sort of... with him. I think he has quite an individual <laughs> brand, doesn't he? He's, he's, yeah, yeah, he does. He does. My first boss actually was and still is. She's now in her 90s. She's been my absolute heroine. So at the time, I guess she was around 70 and I must have been in my 20s or something. And she said, Catherine, you remind me of me. And it was the biggest compliment <laughs> I've ever been paid because she was a, even though she'd had children in, I guess, the 50s or whatever, she became a career woman against all the odds, against all you know the societal norms and everything. She went on to run and manage her business. And, and she made me a director of that company when I was in my 20s and had that faith in me. I think she's been instrumental. Her name's Patricia Lord, and she uh, basically ran a literary agency, actually. That was my first job wow. um, when I left uni. So um, she, she, and she's still one of my absolute heroines uh, in life. And um, yeah, she, she was definitely instrumental. That's brilliant. So we'll, we'll start wrapping it up, Catherine. I know we've, you've probably got places to go, dogs to walk, places to run. <laughs> And other than your improving on your highly competitive 5K time, what is it that excites you about the future? Oh, the London Marathon group, actually. So that is London Marathon Events and, and the, the Charitable Trust. I'm, I'm really excited that we have just come through this governance review, which, which is going to 
encourage us to work even more closely together. I'm, I'm really excited about that because it's a very unusual precedent, I think, in, in the sector is that, you know, we are the parent company of a trading subsidiary, which has got a worldwide profile and, and brand wealth. And I think that opportunity is incredible. I'm looking forward to looking at how, you know, things have changed as a result of COVID attitude mm. to health attitudes to activity and the inequalities that that's laid bare actually um, we have a real opportunity now to not allow any community or group to be left behind and I, I particularly want our strategy to to focus on that that aspect of tackling barriers and access and I'm just extremely excited about about integrating the, the marathon and all of the other events that, that LME put on, supporting them as well, kind of through the narrative force of all that work that we've funded over the last 40 years and all of the people that we've inspired to get active, all of the lives we've changed, which would not have happened were it not for, for the marathon and, and the other events that we put on. And, and I'm looking forward to knitting that narrative together so that we can be greater than the sum of our parts. And what a opportunity what a challenge but what a privilege and uh, yeah I'm running faster as a result so I'm looking forward to uh, (laughs) I'm not that fast Kenneth you're being really nice um, yeah if I can break the 25 minute barrier on my 5k I'll be really happy looks like it's on its way no you you summed it up really really brilliantly there and I think I really resonated when you said you know the job is right because that's kind of how I felt when I got offered my role at, L- at London Marathon Events because it, it is very much a privileged position being able to work with so many amazing organisations that are doing great things and I think you know the future is certainly bright so thank you for that. We're not going to let you go straight away though Catherine we've got a couple of quick fire questions that you might have heard before if you've listened to a, a different version of the the pod. James shall I go first? Yeah go on yeah. Okay, Catherine. Yes. If you can transport yourself back in time and meet your 20-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give and why? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) My 20-year-old self. 20 years old. Where were you at 20? Working at the literary... Oh, you were at university probably? Yeah, I was still at uni. I'd probably say, however bad it gets, it does always work out. It always does, doesn't it? Mm. Often, mm. happily for most people. So I, I would, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd also say retain that sort of uh, rosy tinted, uh, optimistic, gung-ho attitude of yours because you're going to need it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you have. Um, <laughs> t- second question for you. Can you tell us about one life hack a productivity tool, a habit or a skill that you have taught yourself that you think everybody needs to know about? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm obsessed with life hacks and productivity. Well, you've built this up now, Catherine. That's not to say I'm good at it. Ooh, yeah. Block your diary as much as you possibly can. I block huge chunks out of my diary. I think that's really important. I always set my intentions on a Sunday for the week. I get my to-do lists crossed off and I always write everything down if I can. So I don't wake up in the middle of the night worrying about some niggling thing. 
Yeah, and oh, airplane mode. My, I put my personal phone on airplane mode <laughs> as much as I possibly can. And I'm constantly deleting um, apps from my phone, which uh, inhibit my productivity. Nice. Oh, that was good. That, that was, was three or four tips in one, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Groundbreaking yeah, there, though. Nothing yeah, I liked it. Sorry. You know what? We haven't had anything like any of those before, though, I don't think. Yeah. Okay. So we can take that. 74 episodes in. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, last question for you. So as a, po- as a podcast that focuses around people doing more good, what's your favourite story or inspiring individual that you've met on your journey recently who has done something good for others? Oh, I've met some amazing individuals through the Joe Cotts Foundation, particularly working on loneliness. There is a really inspiring young guy who when lockdown started I think he was actually one of the first people to set up a local community group that sort of took it upon themselves very early on to knock on doors um, you know offered to do shopping alleviate loneliness established a buddying scheme and that is yes charity begins at home it really does and although it can be very appealing to think about the sort of inverted commas glamorous side of charity you know abroad and you know digging wells and whatever you know sponsoring goats (laughs) the the real the real hard work and challenging stuff is on your doorstep so that's the kind of charity that really impresses me Mm. um, because we can often overlook the the good that we can do just in a 10 mile 10 meter radius even so yeah I think I think I'd choose him nice I like that. We often we often overlook the the good we can do in a ten mile radius. That's a good way of putting it. Well, look, Catherine, we'll we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for your time. We do really appreciate it. I know it's only like the second or third time we've actually spoke to each other, so I look forward to having many or more of these conversations without them being recorded. But is there anything you'd like to 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 leave our audience with? If anyone wants to reach out to you or, or get in touch, anything you'd like to say? Well, firstly, I mean, thank you for thinking I have anything interesting to say on your brilliant podcast so I'm, I'm I've really enjoyed it and uh, I'm we, we are on Twitter the London Marathon Trust has just set up its Twitter account so please follow us and reach out to me on any topic really particularly keen to encourage more and more people to think about careers in in the charitable sector because there are so many and uh, there are so many different aspects to it and I, I love that your podcast really highlights just that vast range of different jobs and career opportunities that there are so so thank you for that I think you're doing a brilliant service as well as producing a really good podcast <laughs> oh I'm blushing here James Very good yeah. uh James any final thoughts no, do, you know, do you know what we talked halfway through this about chapters and you have told such a rich and varied story over the past hour I've loved that it's been really good and at the risk of complimenting Kenneth I think the two of you will go on to do amazing stuff <laughs> In the, in the next few chapters so i look forward to, to reading those thank you so much thank you thank <laughs> all right thanks a lot That's then right. Catherine. we'll see you all soon thank Take you care. cheers okay thanks bye just before we go can we ask a favor if you've enjoyed this episode and you've made it this far after all and you want to help us reach more people and attract more guests then we'd love a review on itunes 
Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good.